Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and happy Monday. What an extraordinary weekend. We had a lot of news breaking at justinnews.com, but no story more important than the one that broke on Saturday evening in which the Energy Department, according to the Wall Street Journal, in a classified analysis, has concluded that the most likely origins of the COVID-19 virus was a lab leak in China. And this is based on continuing growing intelligence that just continues to keep coming out. Remember, Donald Trump told us this. Donald Trump's administration told you this. Just the news told you this. We did lots of stories in 2020 and 2021. And in 2021, when the House Intelligence Committee put out under Republicans a powerful, powerful open source intelligence document showing why the lab leak theory was plausible, the media ridiculed it. And I mean really ridiculed it. The New York Times protested Tom Cotton for suggesting it. Ann Applebaum, the former Washington Post editorial page writer, editor, she called it Soviet propaganda to suggest that the virus had the Washington Post fact checker. Glenn Kessler said it was scientifically impossible. Well, guess what? They were all wrong. They were all wrong. And the gaslighting that the media industry, along with their allies in the scientific and intelligence community, to impose on the United States people another false narrative. How many of those have we had, right? They keep going in reversal. But today, I want to focus a little bit of time on that. We're going to talk at the top of the hour. Amanda and I had an opportunity to spend some time with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia today. She's got some very interesting ideas on how to deal with the bureaucrats who were involved in this censorship on Russia collusion, on Hunter Biden, on Joe Biden in China, on the virus. She's going to tell us how she and her colleagues in the Republican House, by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene, much more involved with leadership now than she's ever been, just a couple of years removed from being kicked off of Twitter. That's right. She was kicked off of Twitter for something that turned out to be a legitimate question for all of us on COVID safety. We're going to start the show with her. Amanda and I had a really fun conversation with her and a lot of news in that. And then the second half of the show, we're going to do a deep dive with a journalist, an investigative journalist, who I think has done more than anyone to highlight the problems with the news media. He was courageous when he came out as a professional journalist. He was rowing against the tide. His book, The Gray Lady Winked took apart the New York Times, not just for its modern day problems, but reminding people all the way back to the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the New York Times had serious ethical and journalistic flaws, particularly problems with the truth, going all the way back to the pre-Nazi 
World War II era. He challenged one of the great institutions in American journals. He did it with facts. It was a powerful, powerful book. He's continued to do that work on things like the Russia collusion narrative that I helped unravel, the COVID narratives that were false and imposed by Anthony Fauci and his gang of thugs, scientific thugs. Ashley Rinsberg's in the house today. He's got a tremendous Substack site where he talks about this on a daily basis. We love having him on the show. And he's going to walk us through why the Energy Department's commentary this weekend, the intelligence analysis, is such a wake-up call, such a complete rebuttal of a mainstream media that took narratives from their friends in the government and ran with it without curiosity, without fact-checking, without common sense. Remember some of the things that we now know about the COVID virus. The mutations are so numerous and quick that they couldn't have happened in an evolutionary time frame consistent with most modern viruses. But they gaslighted people who had far more scientific capabilities. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Harvey Risch, all of them were being told by journalists who didn't have a science degree how wrong they were. These are people that had the credentials to say the things they said, but the media said they knew better just like they knew better on the Hunter Biden laptop. They were wrong. Russia collusion, they were wrong. Ashley Rinsberg is going to walk us through that arrogance, that failure of curiosity, that failure of neutrality in the media. We're going to have a great conversation about that because this weekend was yet another in a long line of wake-up calls. One last thing I want to point out. Over the weekend, I went through the 10 most important emails on the Hunter Biden laptop that explain why Eric Schwerwin, the former associate of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, why his New cooperation with House Republicans in Congress is going to be so important. So many questions we can get answered by his cooperation. Go take a look at those emails. I posted every email so you can see them for yourself. This is an important factual exercise and one that hopefully you'll enjoy and understand why James Comer's announcement on our show, by the way, is such a landmark moment in the investigation of Biden Family, Inc. All right. Let's not waste any time. We're going to take a quick commercial break here from our incredible sponsors and advertisers. When we come back, remember, they make it possible for us to do the things we do every day. When we come back, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene spent some really quality time with Amanda and I this morning. We're going to give you that, followed by an incredible conversation with a courageous journalist who's been calling the media out for its disinformation, Ashley Rinsberg. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook uh, uh, vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning, and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly, I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down, and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% 
money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick House Nutrition and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. She makes headlines almost every day now on the national scene from requesting an audit of our expenditures in Ukraine to talking about the divisiveness in our country. She joins us right now. She is Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from the great state of uh, Georgia. Congresswoman, great to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk with you both. It is great to have you on. I want to start with something that you have been fighting harder than anyone for the longest period of time. A lot of people used to deny there was censorship by the federal government. We now have it out in plain sight. We see it. FBI, CDC, name an alphabet soup agency. They're doing it. How are Republicans going to use the power of the person, other tools to try to stamp this out, to get it out of the mindset of our bureaucrats? Well, John, first, thank you to you for breaking this story. You were so early on it. And I, and I have to tell you, it's personal to me because my Twitter account was permanently banned right. for almost the entire year of, of 2022 while I was a candidate for Congress. So that, that affected me greatly. But more importantly, it affected millions of Americans and it affected the ability to tell the truth on, on all kinds of stories from Hunter Biden's laptop to important COVID medical information, doctors were banned, um, all kinds of people and their, their, their First Amendment speech was completely violated. But now that we know that there was coordination between the DHS, the FBI, the CDC, and many different government agencies with these private companies, big tech companies, there needs to be accountability and Republicans hold the purse strings, John. So what we need to do is we need to cut them out of the budget. Key players that played a, port, a, a, a part of this horrific abuse of our rights, they should be fired, and we can do that with the Holman rule. What we can do is we can easily take a pencil and cross out their salary. We can cut out their divisions out of, out of their different um, gigantic, overinflated agencies, and we can really bring accountability by doing it. But the Republican conference, our conference, is going to have to have courage in doing these, these big things because they've never been done before. But you know what? When we have a Department of Justice, it's only serving one political party, and that's the Democrat, that's the ruling party, then we, need, we the Republicans uh, that control the House and the budget, need to go ahead and do it. 
Well, Congresswoman, if they need more courage, tell them that there is a very special document called the Constitution that bolsters <laughs> their ability to use the power of the purse. I wanted to ask you, though, about one of your most recent tweets about a national divorce. A lot of folks went crazy thinking that you were talking about secession. Uh, I know that it's more nuanced than that. Can you give us some of the details of your idea of this, this bifurcation? Yes, uh, thank you, Amanda. And you're right, the Constitution is a great thing, and the Constitution... And, and our founding fathers never envisioned this over bloated, over, overly powerful, um, invasive federal government that is, is really responsible for ruining our country. Here we are at over $34 trillion in debt. We're on the verge of default. Here Congress is being faced with the horrific decision to raise the debt ceiling once again. And Americans are fed up. They're also sick and tired of the never ending foreign wars. But yet here we are, the need neocons, the Biden administration, and, and unfortunately, some of my colleagues are driving us into a, a ever-growing war over in Ukraine that is putting us towards the brink of World War III that no one in America wants. Our border is invaded every single day with no end in sight, and crime is out of control in America, and the moral fabric of our society is being ripped to shreds. Well, Americans on both sides of the aisle are sick and tired of all of it, and they're sick and tired of the federal government. So I simply propose that we need a national divorce where we can split into red states and blue states. And no, that doesn't mean a civil war. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that you can't travel to different states and there would still be trade and commerce and so forth. But it's simply a divide because we're really sick and tired of fighting with each other in blue states. Well, you know what? If you have transition schools um, to change children's gender, that would be horrific. But that would happen in blue states. If they want to have Antifa burning down cities and they want to abolish the police in blue states, have at it. But in red states, we would be protecting kids. Uh, we wouldn't have drag queens gyrating in front of elementary school students. We would be supporting our police. We would be getting crime out of the streets and we would be protecting our borders. Um, the federal government would be reduced to a much smaller size, which means it wouldn't cost Americans so much money, and that would be a good thing for all of us. But it would have an important job to do, and that would be to support and defend our national security, defend our borders, uh, maintain the strongest military in the world to protect all 50 states, and more importantly, get back to the role that our founding fathers saw for our federal government. Well, Congresswoman, wouldn't that just be, I mean, that, that sounds to me a lot like federalism, where states are laboratories of democracy. That's where most of the power resides. So states could do their own thing. Red states can have what they want in their schools and, and otherwise blue states the same. Remove some of that power from the federal government and put it back in the states. Yes, it is more like federalism, but it takes some bold actions in Washington that nobody in Washington wants to take, and that would be getting rid of our own power. We would be cutting big bureaucracies and agencies. Department, The Department of Education would have to go because states would be in charge. What about the Department of Transportation that just taxes Americans and then turns around and gives money back to the states with a little surcharge? The Department of Transportation would have to go, and states could be in charge. 
of, of their own transportation and their own highways. There's many other departments that we could cut and reduce their size, uh, get rid of their bureaucracy, and send the unelected bureaucrats back to the private sector where hopefully companies would definitely be hiring and they, they always are and they could get different jobs there. Um, Amtrak would be something that the federal government wouldn't pay for and it could be privatized and then our rails would have to be made safe again because we've all seen what happened in East Palestine. What a horrible disaster. But the main point of what I'm talking about is the real issue that guess what? If you look at the pollings, Americans support it and they support it on both sides of the aisle. I'm just only the only one that's willing to talk about it in Washington at this time. Yeah, it's uh, definitely generated an important national dialogue. In fact, we had a historian, Craig Shirley, on here said he absolutely believes this is going to happen, that your finger is right yeah. on the pulse of what is ahead for America. Very interesting conversation. Congresswoman, you mentioned Ukraine. You're taking some pretty significant action there. You, you've sponsored legislation to get an audit so we understand how our money's being spent. And you've started a PAC. Tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. I introduced the resolution of inquiry to audit Ukraine. This was a resolution I introduced last Congress, and every single Republican on the Foreign Affairs Committee voted yes to my resolution, and every single Democrat voted no. So I feel very confident now in our Republican-controlled House that the Republicans in charge of this committee, Congressman McCall, who's the chair, will all vote yes to this resolution of inquiry, because no matter where you stand, on the issue of Ukraine, whether you're for the war or against it, we all should be completely for an audit. And that's what the American people deserve. I'm completely against the war in Ukraine. I want to see it come to an end. I want Russia and, and Ukraine to come to peace talks and end this war. But you know who's driving it? It's America. America needs to stop pushing the war in Ukraine. We need to force them to come to the table on peace and end this madness right now before it leads us into to more war and, and loss of American lives and loss of lives all over the world. Enough of that. We've seen decades of never-ending foreign wars, and Americans have no appetite for it. What we do have an appetite for is defending and protecting our own border that is largely being ignored. So I'm very excited to, that I introduced this resolution of inquiry, and I look forward to seeing um, my Republican colleagues vote yes for it on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I'll keep you updated on where we are with that, John and Amanda. Congresswoman, we've just got a few seconds left. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a moment ago being up against a default. What's the GOP going to be willing to do to compromise, or are you going to shut the government down? Well, what we have to do is we have to cut spending. And that goes back to what I was talking about, about reducing the size of the federal government. It's like an overgrown, terrifying monster in our house. It's eating all the food out of our fridge. Yep. It's making a mess everywhere, sleeping on our sofa and leaving our doors and windows wide open. So what we have to do, Republicans, we need to go line item by line item, just like people do in their checkbook and in their, yeah. their own budgets at home, just like companies that are struggling do. This is what Republicans have to do, is we have to get all the wasteful spending out of there. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Ashley Rinsberg, great journalist, author of the book, When the Great Lady Winked. We'll have that right after this commercial break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. We've been talking over the last few weeks on all of the stories that have gone in reversal, all of the mainstream news media's stories that have gone in reversal. We've seen the great Columbia Journalism Review piece done by the Pulitzer winner, Jeff Gerth, uh, highlighting all the experiences that were there. We've seen just this past weekend, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the decision by the Energy Department to say the preponderance of evidence supports that the COVID-19 virus leaked from a lab in China, something we were told was a conspiracy theory. Well, our next guest has been writing about the media's failures uh, for quite some time, as literally the author of my favorite book of the last couple of years, The Gray Lady Winked. He also has an incredible Substack at ashleyrinsberg.substack.com. Joining me right now, the great investigative journalist, Ashley Rinsberg. Ashley, great to have you back on. Thank you, John. It's great to be here, as always. You have done such great work. And when you started this, you were really paddling against a river coming against you when you were dare to challenge the mainstream media's regular stories that turned out not to be true. But now it seems as though even the mainstream media realizes they have a problem. I think the Jeff Gerth article was so enlightening to see some huge figures, people like Bob Woodward and others saying, we got a lot wrong. We got to stop this. We got to get it fixed. Give us the state of play of where the traditional news media is in their journey on realizing how far they were wrong in the last six years. Well, in terms of how far they have realized it. I'm not really sure they have or that they ever will, um, simply because I don't think it matters. I think this was a question of, uh, you know, thesis journalism at best and probably something closer to um, really something that does border on if it doesn't cross the line into actual election interference. I mean, they were they were actually trying to have a sitting president removed. That was the entire point of the whole exercise over the period of at least four years, probably more than that by now. So I don't think that there's much retrospection or introspection going on. I think everyone's got their Pulitzers and it was kind of mission accomplished on that. And um, that's where we are. To their credit, Columbia Journalism Review has actually gone back and done probably the only big deep dive into what went wrong with media, uh, with, with Russiagate and the media. And, um, you know, I don't know that there's so many more that are following after it. Bob, Bob Woodward has made a few comments here and there. Um, and uh, the former editor of The Wall Street Journal has made a few comments here and there as well. But this is not a, a reckoning, at least in terms of how the media sees it. Yeah, that is such a great point. And I look back at some extraordinary moments and we've seen now the Twitter files, but there was a moment where Senator Tom Cotton was being censored. Ted Cruz was being laughed at by the Washington Post fact checker, Glenn Kessler, who may actually want to change his title because checking facts haven't been his song suit the last few years. Do you think that some of these institutions, even if the individual journalists 
don't acknowledge they're wrong, that some of these institutions are going to be forced to do something, uh, either do evaluations, come up with new policies. It, it seems like some of these institutions are at a tipping point for the first time. Uh, you know, I, I think I would be pretty surprised to see that. Um, just to give a sense, I mean, you mentioned Tom Cotton. We all remember when he, Tom Cotton had an op-ed in the New York Times that the staff looked upon unfavorably. And they actually got up and walked out and, and all tweeted the same verbatim tweet about their outrage. And that was just an op-ed. This, the Russiagate scandal, was four or five, six years of attack uh, that was baseless. If it had been based on evidence, that would be a completely different story, regardless of your politics. It turns out none of it was true. There have not been walkouts. There have not been tweets. There have not been even a little tiny peep of remorse. So I would be I would be absolutely stunned. I mean, I have to say I was quite surprised that Columbia Journalism Review did this four part 26,000 word uh, deep dive. I did not see that coming from CJR because they are very much part of the, the media ecosystem. In some ways, they're kind of at the center of it with the Pulitzer Prize. But um, they did it, and that might be because they have less to lose. They, they're not a for-profit entity, and they're not chasing clicks, and they're not you know, jealously guarding their brand like the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN are. So you know, I would welcome it, but um, somehow I don't see it happening. Yeah, that is going to be the sad part. I think the most reflective part was Jeff Gerth's work. Jeff Gerth is an amazing reporter. I've known him for years. And he's just an honest broker. He doesn't start with a preconception of a story. He follows the facts and, and he keeps himself neutral, even when it's hard. And that's what we used to all be in the profession until a few years ago. I've looked at your book. I've now read it at least six or seven times. I love every aspect of what it brings out in taking one of the greatest institutions in American journalism and showing actually maybe some of its reputation hasn't been that well earned. Maybe it's been an illusion. Do you think there's a moment in the mid 2010-2015 period? And I want to go back to this incredible op-ed that you wrote uh, that I mentioned at the top of the show because you call the Russia collusion narrative the media's Vietnam War. They picked a war with Donald Trump and fought. But is there a tipping point when you look back at history where journalists just seem to say, oh, screw it, I'm putting my thumb on the scale this time? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that was um, beginning in 2015, 2016, when the Trump candidacy became quite real, it started out as a media punchline uh, and it started out as a way for them to generate clicks. The moment they started to see that this was viable and the moment that Trump actually won the election, that is when it all began. Um, you know, we had the New York Times coming out with this. Jim Rutenberg did a column about rethinking standards of objectivity. There were op-eds about it. This was the media kind of proverbially gearing up for their fight where they say, okay, Trump is too far outside of the window of acceptable discourse. So we're going to have to readjust the standards of journalism, recalibrate it to meet this the, the threat. I mean, they had deemed him a threat before he actually took a single action. And that's where the journalistic standards are just tossed out. So I don't think it actually all happened in that moment. But I think that was the moment where it was like, the sort of point of no return. But then you got four, four years later, 2020, the pandemic, the BLM riots, the killing of George Floyd, those three things, plus the Trump presidency, 
that's where it was just all out advocacy journalism, notions of like kind of disinterested, dispassionate journalism were considered to be cute and quaint and outdated by this new kind of uh, journalist that we saw up here. Results oriented, determine the result they want to have, and then they tailor their journalism to it. That's you just see it so often now how it happens. In fact, you can almost spot a story now that's going to turn out to unravel or go in reversal just by the language and the determination of the reporter to lead a reader or lead a viewer by the nose. It's pretty remarkable. You've done something. So has many other great journalists, Matt Taibbi and so many others. Glenn has done it. The rise of Substack, the start of things like Just the News and other new news sites. It seems as though there's a renaissance of traditional reporters going back and say, hey, the traditional media is messed up. We're going to start a new media. Do you think that trend line continues and are Americans beginning to embrace what is really the alternate media, but the alternate media may actually be the original media? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I think that's a great point you make when we think about early uh, news pamphlets, like the kind of thing that Benjamin Franklin was doing with his own printing press. Uh, very, very hyper-local or hyper-focused on on a single issue. And that is great, important stuff. What we saw with the mainstream media was just this huge uh, corporatization of news, where you have 90% of the news media concentrated in the hands of six companies. And the stakes are so high, their overhead is so high, that they're always chasing scoops. They're chasing page page views and clicks and subscribers. And they can't just do the normal kind of sane, sober, journalistic thing that you can do on a smaller scale. So I think that return, even from the business model perspective, makes so much more sense. We're seeing it, like you said, you guys, Substack, independent journalists, um, and that's across the political spectrum. That's not necessarily right or left or anything. It is really across the board. And I think that is a great trend. In our history, whenever we've had moments like this, it's always been the idea of a free market competition that has solved so much of it. And I think now the free market pressure on the traditional media is probably going to certainly create some alternatives, if not maybe change some behavior on the backside. I, I'll say this, back in 19 and 20, I got gaslighted on all my Hunter Biden reporting during the impeachment. It's all now turned out to be true. But now I have major institutions that you know ridiculed me back in 19 and 20 despite you know 30 years of success in the profession and they're all coming to me I'm like hey can you help us get caught up on Hunter Biden I see in the background people now starting to come and realizing they got to get right with the American people at least in pieces they may not get right in every part of it but that is encouraging to me and it's probably a sign that these this new competition of Substack particularly is beginning to have an effect it's very very exciting to watch that I want to take the moment that happened this weekend because there are so many fun tweets we can go back. There's Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post picking on those who thought that the lab leak theory was legit because sources were telling him it was legit. There is Ann Applebaum, who used to be a, I think, a New York Times writer and certainly was part of some of these disinformation things. She basically calling the lab leak theory a Soviet propaganda When the Department of Energy, which is now the fourth or fifth intelligence or federal agency to now say the lab leak theory is extraordinarily plausible and likely, when you look back at the journalism of 2020, how do you diagnose how so many big institutions and big names got it wrong? You know, I think they were doing a lot of what what was going on with the Hunter Biden stuff, which is that they were taking their cues from government in one form or another. So in Hunter Biden, in Hunter Biden's case, you know, we had this this kind of farcical letter of 50 intelligence head, former intelligence heads coming out saying 
this is, you know, this is totally fake. And then the media just runs with that because they were, you know, the, the government leaned on them in some form. And this came from, the, in that case, the executive branch. In the case of lab leak, it came from the science establishment. It came from Fauci. Fauci was, was handing down information. The pipeline was the science media. That would be journals like Nature, like The Lancet, uh, like Science Magazine. And these consumer media journalists covering the topic would go and look at The Lancet and they would go look at Nature. They would do zero investigation. They, looked at, they did actually no reporting on the topic. And they would just sort of lift these talking points from these articles, which in many cases were not they would literally take the language. They would, these were not scientific articles. They were virtually just op-eds printed in the Lancet, printed in Nature. So this was just a, a hierarchical information structure, mostly coming from Fauci, that the, the rest of the media just hoovered it up, sucked it right up, splashed it across, and made it gospel. And it, it happened so fast. It really is amazing. You can go back and literally see, and it's funny, I see, and I've gone back now and looked at, you know, the attacks I went under late 19 and early 20 when I was at the Hill, and I literally can see, because at the time, you know, you're getting bombarded and you can't literally see the fog and the facts, but I've gone back now and like every newspaper had the exact same eight points and almost identical sentences. Someone fed all of them and they had no problem just passing it on. And I'm fascinated by this dynamic. When I got into journalism, distrust of the government was one of the things that was embedded in you. Listen, you give the, treat the government fairly, but always with a word of caution, trust but verify. When did journalists become favored brethren of the government rather than an independent arbiter and independent watchdog of the government? I think this was a lot about the Obama administration becoming the, you know, most of the, the media's kind of wet dream. They have the perfect president and uh, doing all the right things so, supposedly and saying all the right things supposedly. And you want your team to win. And that, that sort of became uh, that moment where things start to shift. And I think it, like Trump then really solidified that where they saw just a, they really saw as much as he talked about the media as, as the enemy of the people, the media saw him as an enemy of the republic. So that became that moment where it was, it, it was no longer about reporting facts. It was an extension of politics. And the politics that were in place were just an extension of this kind of uh, warfare that's been going on in the United States. Yeah, that's such a great analysis. Donald Trump was certainly the anti-Obama, and that threatened eight years of comfort that the media had under Barack Obama. There's a, another element of this that I've tried to look at and reflect on because I think it's so fascinating when you look at the evolution of in the media space. There is a lack of curiosity in some things. And I'll just take the lab leak theory or the idea that this virus could have evolved quickly. When you just got the pure facts, the early reports clearly showed that this virus had like 80, 90, 100, 120, 150 changes in a very short evolutionary time. That lack of curiosity would just look at, okay, if this is natural, how did it happen in nature? Because normally natural viruses evolve over time. No one had even the slightest bit of curiosity to look at what was being said below the headline. Below the headline, you could literally see people saying, well, this has an awful lot of changes in the virus in a short period of time. The lack of curiosity seems to have really become 
problematic for journalists. I, I remember when, you know, you got your first notebook and my first boss said, I'm going to judge you by how your soul looks every day. And what do you mean my soul? And you're like, I want your shoes to be worn out. You understand, kid? You go out in that street every day and you wear your shoes out. There doesn't seem to be, it seems like people like to sit and get a direct message tweet and write their story after the direct message tweet. How do we get curiosity back into the media? I think we just got, part of it is trying to get away from this idea that journalists are, are supposed to be stars. They're supposed to be like these, these Twitter celebrities that are churning out great scoops one after the next. Because if you're doing that, that's, that's what you're saying is the only possibility. You get a DM, it's a, it's a scoop, it's a story, you slap it up there and you walk away and you're a hero. I think instead, it, it, you know, we've got to go back to that kind of slow grind. Like I, the story that I did about, I wrote a story about um, Fauci being c contacted by Harvard University in the middle of the pandemic on behalf of a Chinese, Chinese real estate agent, uh, sorry, real estate giant, a, a billion dollar company is requesting access to Fauci and it gets it. Um, so that story took me, something like six months and it, you know, it's not, is it six months worth of notoriety? Is it six months worth of pay? No, of course not. But it's an incredible story to write. And I think if you, if you get away from the, the celebrity, if you get away from the so-called glamor that people are chasing after in journalism today, and you get back to the roots, then that's where the good stuff happens. And of course it is happening today. There is a ton of it out there, but you really got to search. You do have to search and you find it on places like where you do your great work on Substack and you know some of the new sites that are coming up that are really trying to practice journalism and do it in a different way than the pack that's been following it. As you look out over the next six months to a year, I suspect there's going to be many more reversals, right? There'll be more reversals on COVID. There'll be more reversals on Trump. One of the interesting dynamics and evolution of this conglomerate of Democrats, bureaucrats, and mediacrats, as I call them now, the uh, traditional media, is that they've gone from just focusing on the danger of Donald Trump, which in their mind they overtly talk about, but they're also challenging populism. And you see this in some of the new projects that the State Department and some of these disinformation networks are doing they see populism, power of the people, as a threat to the future of humanity. I thought in a republic and in a democracy, power of the people was supposed to be our strength. When did populism become a threat and who is driving the counteroffensive against populism? I think as we've seen just this drive towards a concentration of power, that's corporate power, um, and it's merging with government power, and it's merging with media power and Davos, the World Economic Forum, is such a great example of how that all happens and how those conversations take place. And the people in power understand that top-down control works really well for them. And the media is part of that power structure. It's, there's just no doubt about it. I mean, you, I was at Davos this year, and you walk down the main, the main street there, and you got the Politico house, and you got the MSNBC and the CNBC house, and the, they're all a part of that game. And they know that they do well by it. So I think that's where a lot of this anti-populist notion comes from. It's a threat to that kind of power. And for whatever reason, th that power base has largely become, not totally, but largely become um, blue, democratic. So that kind of alignment, I think it, it makes them more interested in preserving the top-down structure for now. I hope you know, it might change. But um, I think that's generally where that comes from. 
Yeah, that's such a great analysis, and it's it's interesting to watch. As you look out over the next few months, there's going to be some new challenges to the narrative related to the Biden family. We now know that one of Hunter Biden's closest business associates, a guy who kind of shuttled between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, warned Hunter Biden he wasn't paying his taxes, was talking to Joe Biden about how he could create some earnings potential while he was vice president. He's now cooperating with Congress. That's a big breakthrough. Some of the other uncomfortable truths, I put those in quote marks, about the Biden family are going to be challenged. And we're going to now realize that some of the things that the media told us about the Bidens, forget about the things that have already been debunked, are they going to get challenged as well? What should we be watching in the media? What are going to be the telltale signs of how the media deals with this? I think it's going to be these kind of um, like slow walkbacks like they, like they, the New York Times did with the um, the New York Post story about the laptop where two years later, whatever it was, 18 months later, they come back saying, oh, actually, we we can now corroborate it, you know, now that it's been like in the media for a year and a half. So this kind of slow, underhanded stuff that doesn't actually reflect the magnitude of these stories, you're going to have to like look very closely, read between the lines to see that kind of that those shifts take place because they're not going to want to come out and say this stuff. And I think as as Biden starts to understand that he's painted himself into a corner, to use um, a phrase by David Sachs in the All In podcast I was listening to, there's going to be a shift in policy, and I think the media is going to probably front run that for him, so that there's going to be a bit of cover. They're going to have they're going to look you look for the op eds coming out saying we need a negotiated peace between Russia and Ukraine, and that Ukraine can never win the war, and that's going to be sort of uh, paving the way for Biden to get himself out of that corner because there is really no other way out. It's so brilliant that you just analyze it that way, because over the weekend, I think it was a New York Times article said they were literally laying the predicate for the shift, which is that Joe Biden's best trait was also his worst enemy. And they were kind of preparing this idea that he would have to flip around on some of the things. And you can literally see the groundwork being laid to, oh, we're just going to flip and forget that Joe Biden did all this. And we're just going to cover how he fixes the things that are really his own doing. That predicate was laid out there in a really remarkable set of stories this week, and particularly I think, I think it was either Political or New York Times had one that just caught me as, ah, it's beginning. Last question. Joe Biden looked into the camera at the beginning of his presidential campaign. It was in the fall of 2019. He looked in the camera and said, China is not our enemy. China is not our competition. They're not evil people. We've got nothing to worry about that. Now, at the moment he said that, there were already Pacific Fleet admirals and the CIA giving very different assessments. As we learn more about the China threat and as more Democrats begin to join Republicans saying, hey, China is a threat. I mean, Mark Warner has done a complete 180 degrees on China and said, hey, Donald Trump is right about TikTok. As that dynamic goes, do you think the American public will go back and remember that Joe Biden, on one of the seminal policy decisions of his lifetime, was on the wrong side of China, and how could that influence not only the media's coverage of him, but the 2024 race? I think the media will be out there pushing the same kind of, you know, dark Brandon, tough Joe Biden um, storyline that they've, they've pushed on Russia-Ukraine with, uh, you know, nobody questioning the air raid siren where, as Biden's walking through Kiev, despite there being like clear planning with the United States and Russia that they're not going to bomb the president of the United States. Um, I think that's that what we're going to see is a lot of like Joe Biden's tough on China. I think we're going to forget not just that Biden was not tough on China. We're probably also going to forget that Trump's policies, trade policy on China was 
really panned in a in a merciless way by the media. They said it would be a disaster for the American people. They, I mean, all kinds of stuff were very alarming stuff. Where I, I remember watching and reading that coverage and thinking, "Oh gosh, what are we in for?" And then nothing really happened. But except China understood that they were dealing with a president who was serious about confronting whatever threat they were willing to pose. So you know, I think it's going to be spun in all the usual directions um, as to what Biden is actually willing to do on this front. I don't, you know, that's hard to say because. It's really hard to get a sense of where where he's at uh, in terms intellectually and cognitively. It's it's it sometimes it doesn't it doesn't really add up. You know, the, the president of the United States is having a hard time putting a sentence together. Yeah, you see it almost every day now. Geez, even on the trip in Poland, there was just this brain freeze moment. You're like, oh god, and you feel bad. Listen, as an American, you feel bad. You never want your president in that position on the world stage, but. They just keep coming at it over and over and over again. Ashley, you do such amazing work. Uh, give us all your coordinates. So the Gray Lady Winked is one of my favorite books, folks. You can get it everywhere. But Ashley, how do people follow you on Substack and on Twitter? I'm uh, I'm on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg. And uh, on Substack, it's AshleyRinsberg.substack.com. And uh, those are the best places to get me. Or the book's website is The Gray Lady Winked with a gray with an A, the American spelling, and .com. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to anyone who reaches out on Twitter. I def I'm, I'm usually pretty active and, and responsive, so shoot those questions at me or comments or whatever it might be, and I'll be there to answer. You are a must-follow on Twitter. I think some of the keenest analysis I've seen on politics in news media, anywhere in the business, and uh, there's hardly a traditional reporter who's been wrong the last five or six years that doesn't fear what you write next because you stick to facts and you point out how far over a ledge they took all this country the last six years. It's a great honor to read your Twitter feed. Your book is amazing, and I love the stuff you do on Substack as well, my friend. Congrats, and thanks for being on the show today. What a great honor. Thank you, John. It's, it's always great talking to you. I mean, talking to a journalist with as much experience as you have is, is also uh, for me illuminating and enlightening. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we'll be sure to get you back on real soon because I have a funny feeling this topic isn't going away anytime soon. Thanks, Ashley. Have a great day, Tay. Definitely. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a few seconds. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
All right, folks, what an incredible conversation. A big thank you to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's so busy these days. Some real strong ideas on how to fight government-backed censorship through the power of the purse. You heard that. Very, very powerful. And a big thank you to Ashley Rinsberg. I think one of the most thoughtful journalists covering the media today. He covers it with neutrality, but he covers it with an honesty. Listen, we all need a functioning, honest media, neutral media for this country to be as great as it can be. Right now, we don't have it. We've got a propaganda arm of the Democratic Party and the, and the federal bureaucracy. All the institutions we were taught as journalists 30, 40 years ago to treat with a healthy dose of skepticism we now see the media in bed with, and it keeps coming at an enormous expense at the credibility of the news media. Ashley had some very deep thoughts about how we got this far off in the profession, how we might fix it, what lies ahead, the next big stories that are almost certainly going to unravel with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the federal government. So great show all around. I really want to thank everyone for tuning in today. I want to thank Ashley and Congresswoman Green for giving us such a thoughtful opportunity and before we go to onto our rest of our business today, we can go into the evening hours with family and kids and school and basketball games and volleyball games and whatever's on the agenda as mom and dad, grandparents, business colleagues. I want to shout out one of our great projects that we have going here, covidtaxrelief.org. I'd like to take a moment and welcome this new sponsor, the Consumer Tax Advocate. There are so many things going on in the business space. And all of us who stayed open and paid our employees through the COVID crisis know what it took to survive that time. And our folks at Consumer Tax Advocate want you to know that there are new government funds available to reward companies who did that, who stood there on the front lines, kept their employees working, made concessions, figured out how to work people from home, how to make things safe in the office place so we can keep functioning, whether it was news or widgets or food or trucking supplies. So many amazing companies did that. So if you're one of those companies, you had two or more employees who stayed open during COVID, this is a new program. It's not a loan. You don't have to pay it back. But let COVIDTaxRelief.org, COVIDTaxRelief.org help get you up to $26,000 per employee. Visit covidtaxrelief.org right now. This program is complicated, but nobody knows more about it than the CPAs and tax experts at covidtaxrelief.org. You pay nothing up front. They do all the work and they share it in a percentage of the cash if you earn it for your business through a legitimate set of programs, including nonprofits and churches are available for this. All of us who've stayed open during this time frame have the opportunity to qualify including those who even took PPP loans. Even if you had increases in sales, you still might be entitled to relief. So visit covidtaxrelief.org right now for more information on how to get you up to $26,000 per employee. That's covidtaxrelief.org, covidtaxrelief.org. All right, folks, that heads into the evening. It's time to get to family life, private time, maybe pop open a beer, watch a basketball game. But until then, till we get back here tomorrow, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank our good friends at the Consumer Tax Advocate and the sponsors of COVIDTaxRelief.org for sponsoring us. I want to thank Ashley Rinsberg and, of course, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene for two thoughtful interviews. We'll be back tomorrow. And in the meantime, if you need a news fix, you want to know what's going on in the breaking news world, we got you covered at JustTheNews.com. You can subscribe to our letter at JustTheNews.com slash newsletter. You can download the iOS Apple in Android Google Play apps and have a way to both watch, read, and listen to our content like this great show. 
All right, folks, God bless you. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. 